This is a podcast by The Straits Times. Hello and welcome to The Letter from the Bureau, a special series which is part of The Straits Times Asian Insider podcast channel. I'm your host, ST's foreign editor, Bhagyashri Gareka. The Letter from the Bureau is like a scenic detour from the raging news of the day. We talk about life as it goes on amid all the crises that break around us. I chat each month with one of ST's 30-odd correspondents in 15 cities across the Asia-Pacific, the United States, and Europe. And they share with you interesting trends and events unfolding in their countries. In our 15th episode, we are speaking with ST's China correspondent, Or Cheng Wei. It's good to have you on the show, Cheng Wei. Thank you, Bakya, for having me. You wrote recently in your letter from the Bureau about China's rural economy. Now, it's not a letter, it's not the topic that we kind of look at, uh, you know, a, a lot in our pages in the Straits Times. So I'm glad you made that trip. So how important, Cheng Wei, is the rural economy to China's economy overall? Well, Bagya, you know, China is still largely an agricultural country. And of course, um, a huge number of its population still live in the villages. So what we are seeing is that for GDP uh, last year, the primary industry made up about 7.3% of the total contribution to China's GDP. But what is more stuck is the rural-urban divide that has plagued China for a very long time. And that is what President uh, Xi Jinping is trying to correct and narrow as he moves into his third term of leadership. Right. So these days, you know, the talk and the headline is all about the slowdown that's gripping a number of countries around the world, including China, quite prominently China. So in that scenario, is the rural economy being given more importance? Yes. So China's rural economy plays a huge role in the country's dual circulation strategy. So what this is trying to do is that it's trying to increase local consumption while at the same time, you know, minimizing its reliance on export-driven growth, which it has relied on for the longest time since it has opened its doors and gates to the world. What this means is that it's trying to enrich its uh, rural population so that they have higher spending power and also for its residents in its more well-off cities such as Beijing, Shanghai and Guangzhou to visit these rural areas and hopefully promote tourism. That is a big part of it. The other part is also, you know, trying to promote food security because, you know, with all this, as you've mentioned, our bread and butter is the major crisis of the day and we see so much development from the Russia-Ukraine invasion to the US-China um, tensions, right? So all of these things have had effects and disruptions to the supply chain. So China being uh, the world's most populous nation is very worried that, you know, it is unable to fit its people if, if a crisis is dragged out for too long. So food security is definitely on its mind when it comes to promoting rural development. And what are the signs that you see that speak of President Xi Jinping's commitment to the rural economy? So we see President Xi Jinping speaking about it in 2017 when he first mentioned about how you know it's important to focus on rural development. And we now see this after he has declared that you know China has eradicated extreme poverty last year and that is now moving into the phase of common prosperity. So common prosperity really is about bridging the gap between the urban and the rural. And we see this in the first half year's figures when it comes to the per capita disposable income of the urban households. They are standing at about 25,000 yuan, 
Whereas like for the disposable income of rural households, it's 9,787 yuan. So it's a huge divide. So hopefully by narrowing the gap, the rural residents will be able to then be able to fend for themselves when it comes to crisis. And there's less much of a social issue because one thing that we have noticed is, uh, and it's been widely reported, is about the migration of the rural into the urban areas, right? So with the rural doing well, rural areas doing well, then the rural residents might be more motivated to stay and then to grow and prosper there instead of moving to the cities where you have the different problem of urban poverty and public services are then strained. So in that sense, it is going for a more even development because for the longest time, China's development has been very uneven from regions to within cities as well and villages as well. So Cheng Wei, you visited Hunan province recently in order to learn a little more about China's rural economy and how they're revitalizing it. Were you impressed by what you saw? It was definitely an eye-opening trip, Bagya. We have visited different types of villages. Some had prided itself on its culture and heritage. So you have the minority in China where they perhaps have a different, uh, more colorful culture than, say, city folk, where it's mostly the Han. And there have been other villagers that have prided themselves on being, for example, the birthplace of the literary author, of famous literary authors. So they then decided to set up chalets and also bungalows um, to try and attract the crowd. We have also seen the development of Zhang Jiajie National Park, which really, you know, is famous because Avatar, the, the movie, its mountains is based on that. Oh, yes. So we have seen different kinds of development. And we've also seen in a village where they talk about improving farming methods. I think what struck me most and perhaps what concerns me as well is uh, the particular village that I wrote about in my article, um, Shibatong Village. So this place has been called the place where President Xi Jinping first mentioned targeted poverty alleviation. So this place has rocketed to fame because of Xi Jinping's visit. Essentially, you know, if we were to look at it objectively, that, that kind of popularity is fueled by the president's star power. But not many places can have that kind of prosperity, right? So many people would then visit this place to see, you know, to talk to hear villagers stories of how they interacted with the Chinese, Chinese president and the such. And this has in a way shone a light on their produce. But in that sense, that produce perhaps would also be commonplace among other rural villages. So my concern is that when it comes to promoting rural tourism, I think that the villagers need to, they themselves have something of substance and cannot quite rely on, say, like a celebrity star power or a president star power to bring it to fame for it to be sustainable development, right? So, you know, Shibatong is really that kind of gold standard for development because of the attention that's been paid to it. Right. And, you know, if, as well as, say, for example, the other village that I went, which was trying to promote itself as a literary um, hideaway from the city, but the people that it's been attracting are young couples with children. So that's quite a disconnect from what it's meant to be built. So in that sense, I think better or rather a more sustainable development would be then to look at its uh, competitive advantages. What does it have that other places don't? Or let it grow naturally. But right now it's a bit of a built and they will come kind of mentality. I'm not sure if that's sustainable in the long run. So in other words, that if this is very much a top-driven kind of initiative towards yes. 
And so therefore, are the villagers then skeptical or are they already working around that? I think it is top driven simply because of the culture of a lot of China's villagers and also its leadership, where there is a very top driven approach. But I don't think that means that the people below are skeptical. I think that they are also eager for a way to develop. And if this is the way that they are showing us forward, we'll go along with it because we're also looking at the very early stages of rural revitalization, where there's still a lot of money to be spent on these projects. So maybe, you know, for now, the villagers are happy with what they have because they are seeing that kind of growth. But again, it goes back to what is the value of the villagers and their development? What value do they bring to their economy? If that cannot be identified within this, this few years where it's trying to, to build itself that way, it's going to be very difficult for them to remain on board. And some may even resent, like, why am I changing my, my ways of living to try and grow? But right now, we're not seeing any of that because you're still in these early stages. People are still very, very optimistic about the growth, especially since Chinese President Xi Jinping has emphasized that this is common prosperity and that this will be the current phase of development. Find us on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or via the Google Voice Assistant and Amazon Alexa-enabled devices. And now back to our podcast episode. And now let's get back to my conversation with ST's China correspondent, Or Cheng Wei. Now, earlier you talked about, you know, the dual circulation economy. And um, yeah, I understand how it plays a role into self-sufficiency and therefore when it comes to food security, and there was some anxiety around that issue too, how this all comes together to make rural revitalization very important. I was just curious, uh, you know, from a geopolitical angle too, this is important for China, given the trajectory it is on right now. You know, the clash with the U.S., very much a part of, you know, the, the planning that's going on at the leadership level. My question to you actually is, are the villagers actually aware that they have this part to play in, you know, China's development? I think that the villagers, they themselves are very much aware of the kind of good that they will produce because China has prided itself on being an agricultural nation and its villagers know that by having better harvest and produce, they themselves can be enriched and they also benefited, say, the society. So I speak from a conversation that I had with a rice farmer. So he himself was uh, participating in the local government's uh, experiment to grow better quality rice. So his harvest has basically doubled in within a few years. And he's very proud of the fact that, you know, he's able to contribute to society this way. Of course, he himself is enriched and better off for it. And I think he is aware that, you know, um, the importance of basically food security, because we do see China depending on other countries for, say, like soybeans, right, which is a huge thing with the US for a while. So in that sense, that they know that the role they play, but I think it also comes from that pride of being able to serve their neighbors as well as the local economy. So one story that he told me really touched me, which was he talked about how he's happy to contribute to the legacy of this famed agriculturist, uh, Yuan Longping. So he, he was famous for improving the, the yield and grain and make better weather resistant and bug resistant grains. So his work is famous throughout um, the world. And Hunan is where he spent a lot of time. He eventually died in Hunan. So in that sense, Hunan's farmers are very, very proud. And they are eager to carry on that legacy, seeing that you know he, he passed away last year. 
You know, I, I was just thinking that in many countries, they sort of romanticize villages or village life. You know, the English speak about their countrysides and escaping there. And, you know, it's sort of memorialized in so many books that you read. And I think India, they say India lives in its villages and so on. I'm wondering what has been the sort of trend in China, because we know, and you referred to it too, that earlier the stories about the village were actually a bit negative. It was all about large migration taking place from villages to cities where people could find work. And this was a situation where villages basically consisted of old people or the very young, the children who were growing up, you know, with their grandparents, with the parents all away and working in factories and towns. So is that changing? Is is that perception changing? And is there an attempt to rectify that? I think that the perception is very slowly changing. Again, you know, these examples that um, I've listed, they are at the forefront of China's rural revitalization efforts. Um, I think most of uh, China's agricultural villages still remain very poor and behind. And regarding romanticizing village life, I think that the Chinese value of wanting to make it big is more prevalent in that city. Whereas a lot of people would say, you know, how great it would be if I could live in the villages, but it's but not many actually make that move. And I think the Chinese knows the Chinese government knows this as well. So a lot of times they have beautified the place to to attract weekend tourists, to let you enjoy your share of the ideal village life. So I'll give you an example as well. So one of the villages, uh, the way that they have developed is by building a community garden where the villagers themselves grow, produce anything from like chilies to ladies' fingers and the stuff. What the city folk can do is that they can take a short drive, maybe by, by short, I mean like an hour or two uh, into this village where they can look at this community garden and see what they want to buy. And then they will scan a QR code to pay the farmer directly. So it satisfies their idea of, you know, I spend a few hours away from the city, but at the same time, I can go back to the comfort of the city very quickly. I think to that sense, it feeds that romanticization enough. Then, you know, before the bugs come in or before they have to spend a night and realize that there's no air conditioning or, you know, or if water is far away and you have to get it yourself. So in that sense, I think they are drawing that balance. But of course, um, there are some places where they have really emerged as tourist destinations. Then that kind of romanticization can drag on a bit longer, if, if you will. But I would say that due to the nature of the village where it's usually very compact and people tend to live perhaps not as uh, well as those in city uh, folk, I think people are aware of that as well. Because a lot of the urban population, they themselves come from villages because all settled into villages, you know. So it's not that far a distant memory from what they know or having relatives perhaps in less areas. And that social hierarchy in China is much clearer in that sense, where living in the, you know, in in, in perhaps the Britain's uh, countryside, that the very rich can live in a countryside, you know, owning acres and acres. But that's not true in China, where perhaps everyone's given a parcel of land Right. So it's a very different social culture and social hierarchy. Thank you for that, Chengwei. That was a very interesting insights about China's villages, which, which we don't really talk about as much, but it's really interesting to learn and learn how, how things are changing. 
And with that, it's a wrap for Letter from the Bureau. We hope you enjoyed it. If you'd like to read Chengwei's column, we have a link for you in our podcast description box. And you will also find there a link to other stories in our Letter from the Bureau series. That was a podcast by The Straits Times. Send your feedback to podcast at sph.com.sg. Find us on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or via the Google Voice Assistant and Amazon Alexa-enabled devices. For more podcasts by The Straits Times, The Business Times, and Money FM 89.3, you can also download the audio by SPH app. That's A-W-E-D-I-O.